Welcome to this uh, last historical group lecture of 2004. I think we've had a very good year with interesting lectures and good audiences and good discussion. And I'm sure tonight will be no exception. Um, in fact, I'm absolutely certain that with the uh, interest afforded by this particular topic, uh, there'll be a great deal to talk about after the lecture has been delivered, and I'm sure we shall all enjoy it and learn from it. Our lecturer, uh, Mike Hurst, is an aeronautical engineer whose career has been involved in aircraft systems and civil aviation development, and his association with the history of Miles aircraft stems from a chance meeting almost 40 years ago with a former Miles employee. He's been involved in the RAAS since 1968, and he served on the Student and Graduate Committee, the Avionics and Systems Committee, and for 20 years contributed to the Oxford Air Transport course. He's a senior associate of APD Limited, a UK-based airport consultancy, which manages and contributes to airport development programs all over the world. The subject, of course, is the Miles M52 project, um, a project which has excited interest, controversy, um, speculation, uh, ever since, I suppose, pretty well ever since it was cancelled. It was a very bold uh, concept um, uh, instigated in 1943 and uh, its construction was quite well advanced when all of a sudden it appeared it was cancelled in 1946. Ever since that time I think it's fair to say there has been debate, argument about why it was cancelled. Some people have not found the official explanation given to be very convincing. Uh, all sorts of uh, theories have been advanced and I think are still around. I occasionally say to people, is it conceivable that somebody might still at this time managed to drop on some document which really gets us a little further along this road of explaining the, uh, the reasons behind the cancellation of the M52, which appeared to offer such great potential for a, a, a great breakthrough for British aviation after the war. It may well be, of course, that the official explanation is quite correct, but uh, that's for everybody to judge. And I'm sure Mike Hurst will give us a very interesting lecture on this. I know he's done a lot of work on it, and there are people in the audience who uh, have uh, been closely associated with it in the past, and I very much welcome all of you. And I hope that uh, some of you will feel inclined to take part in the discussion. So without further ado, Mike, please deliver the lecture. Thank you, Frank.
ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to the lecture tonight, and thank you ever so much to the historical group for asking me to present this um, uh, lecture on the M52. Uh, I think I've first of all got to start off with, with trying to explain why it's me that's giving this lecture. Uh, I actually was not even born when it was cancelled. Um, but as Sir Frank just said, I was a chance encounter with Don Brown, who was one of the members of the Mars team and who wrote uh, quite a significant book on the history of Mars aircraft in the late 60s. It was a chap I met at that time and we became very good friends. Uh, Don sadly passed away, I guess, 17 years ago now, and he left me a lot of his papers um, and uh, the, the sort of things that, that, I did, that I found in his house. And he said, aeronautical memorabilia, if I say that there was four and a half tons of it, um, <laughs> that's the closest I've come to divorce. Um, <laughs> but um, from that, I, I've... Uh, found a, a wonderful um, group of people in the Mars collection who've also been beavering away and uh, when the society asked me if I would kind of look at the papers and uh, put this lecture together I thought let's see what we can do and if we can help to shed some light on the controversy of the M52 which Sir Frank just alluded to. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and work through a little history of the project chronologically. Um, I'll take a short pit stop to look at Mars aircraft because I don't know exactly the cross-sex of the audience here, but I was a bit fearful that some would be here that knew little about Mars aircraft or even little about the project. And, uh, and then I want to wind up to looking at the cancellation at the end of it. So um, there's what the project would have looked like. Um, and what we'd love in the UK is to be able to, not that we'd have had an air-to-air -air of that nature, but if you've got a flight simulator these days with a little CAD tool, you can build your own models and fly them. And I'll tell you that the modern tools don't know how to handle the aerodynamics of that thing. So, um, but um, I thought I'd have some fun on mine at home one day. But um, it would have been nice, wouldn't it? And it appears that we got so close. Here's a project then that was conceived in 1943 uh, and it was cancelled in 1946. And in that time, a tremendous amount of work done and um, a very significant project, uh, which it would be nice to look deeply into. What I've done here is um, I've just um, taken the, the front copy of the specification for the aeroplane, um, the E2443. This was actually issued in August 44, but um, they started discussing the aeroplane in October 1943. There was a copy of this for sale on eBay two years ago. Amazing what gets on there, isn't it? Um, I would never have seen it. A friend of mine called me up. Um, I think it went for £10. But if anyone here bought it. But this is a copy that Don left me. I'm told I should have crossed out secret and put them classified, but I don't wish to deface it. Um, what happened, I don't want to delve into the, the prehistory in Miles too deeply, uh, but Miles had bid for a Brabazon uh, Committee uh, civil airliner contract, which was rejected. They felt unfairly, and as Don Brown put it in his uh, book, um, the SOP, if you want to call it that, was to offer them this special contract. Um, it, it almost did follow that line, but it wasn't quite that simple. But uh, as I said there, on October the 8th, um, October the 8th 1943, um, Air Commodore Sawley, the controller of research development at MAP, uh, sent a letter to 
uh, George Miles, uh, not, not George Miles, sorry, F.G. Miles, uh, George being his brother in the Miles Aircraft firm. And in that letter, he said, I should like to discuss an early date some work I have in mind for you. And uh, typical of F.G., he was there at the meeting the following day, and uh, they began to talk about this project. And it was for a high-speed single-engine experimental aircraft. Uh, the spec, as I've said already, came out about 10 months later. This is a meeting in, um, that was held in London in, in, on the 9th of October 1943. So remember here, we're talking right in the depths of the war. And um, there were five people present at that meeting. Dr. Garner, Mr. Rowe, Dr. Oxby Cox, all names that I'm sure most of you in the historical branch will come across. Mr. F.G. Miles, uh, representing Miles Aircraft. And interesting, on the memo, it just said F.W., and I had to be told that was Frank Whittle. And uh, so Frank was there. And in fact, the Whittle engine is uh, very much a big part of the, the topic here today. They decided, and I've made some comments there for you, um, that the all weight would be five to 6,000 pounds. I put a little optimistic. Um, they strive to get close to that. I believe it came in around about 7,000. I've got a weight uh, breakdown later. Target first flight date was nine months. Very optimistic, but um, you've got to remember Miles were used to getting an idea, designing it and building it in, uh, in like seven weeks, and uh, so they probably thought they could do a supersonic aircraft in nine months. Target speed, 1,000 miles per hour, that was maintained uh, in, the, uh, in the contract, and all the evidence is that had the aircraft been built, there's a good chance it would have achieved that, which would have been wonderful. The fuel allowance was for 30 minutes flying at 40,000 feet at 700 miles per hour. Uh, I don't know if they would have met that, possibly. Uh, an all-moving tailplane was specified, and that's interesting. A lot of people have speculated that we were streets ahead of uh, the Americans who were having problems with aircraft um, and didn't appreciate the value of an all-moving tail and whether, in fact, they picked up the idea off the UK. No specific evidence to that point come about, I might add, but there it was specified on day one. And they did look at using skids instead of landing gear. That was uh, one of the proposals at that first meeting. So you can see it must have been quite an exciting meeting, wasn't it, um, to have been there. Let me just talk about Miles Aircraft. I put designers of innovative aircraft. What, what I discovered when I, when I met uh, Miles and a few other people from uh, Miles Aircraft uh, is that um, they were very easily uh, inspired to do various things. And this here is nothing to do with Miles. It's the Westland Elan, which I'd never heard of until uh, I came to look at this story. But in November 41, George Miles saw this aeroplane. There's only the one ever built, I believe, at Boscombe Down. And you can see it's um, a Lysander, which is a slow aeroplane, and so someone had the good idea, let's put a, a big turret in the back of it, a bit like the old Bolton Paul Defiant, isn't it? Uh, so he's got some rearward defence. But with all that weight in the back, the tailplane grew to the extent where it was almost a second wing. And uh, George saw that and thought, tandem wing aircraft, well, that's a good idea, we'll, we'll try them. Um, that was November 41. By the 1st of May 1942, he did the first flight of that aeroplane at the top right. The, the M35, um, and you can see there the inspiration from the Delan in a way, with the um, the high 
uh, four plane and the, the low uh, main plane. Um, Don Brown always said that it was longitudinally unstable. Um, I think, from what I can gather, it wasn't so much it was unstable as the wake off this, this foreplane impinged at certain angle attacks on this uh, main plane. So at certain angle attack regimes, it was almost impossible to fly, but if you could keep it fairly flat, keep the speed up, um, it, wasn't, it was flyable. And I think it's testament to George Miles' skills as a test pilot that he took that off, wobbled about, flew it round and landed back, sweating apparently. And um, they eventually found out where to stick ballast in it to try and get it to go better. But it was obviously wrong. And this is the aeroplane that grew out of it. Um, the M39B, it was flown uh, about a year later, a little over a year later. And uh, in many respects, it's uh, a twin-engined um, but route and very easy, isn't it? So nothing's new in the world, and the route and very easy, um, the Mars employees will say, was copied from the M39. But I've put those in, and I could have put lots more in, of examples of innovative aircraft, because Mars are best known really for doing the Gemini, the Messenger, um, maybe the Aerovan, light aeroplanes principally, and uh, to be selected to do a high-speed aeroplane was quite... Uh, quite a surprise. Why did MHP choose Miles? Well, I think they demonstrated novel aircraft and fast development capability. I think there's a lot to be said that Farmer was just down here, Reading was just up the road, they were barely 12 miles away. Um, it was easy to organise um, these two teams to work together. I'll just try a modern map here and show <coughs> Heathrow to give you some idea of perspective. Um, Miles also, they had no frontline aircraft types in production. So they had a development team which was ready to go. And um, I can see that compared to using, say, the Havilands or Bristol, Avro, the people that were working flat out on uh, frontline wartime aircraft at the time, they might have been a, a logical choice. But um, it, it is an aeroplane which is not in character with the rest of the, uh, the Miles um, uh, series. Well, fundamental design features... Um, I put the basic design was conducted by scientists at Farnborough. I know a lot of Miles people disagree with me here, but from what I can gather, the configuration was very much set by the Farnborough scientists, and Miles were um, assisted and, um, if you want, uh, encouraged to develop that configuration. And um, th there was a lot of work done, I have some of Dennis Bancroft's papers, of looking at different cockpit configurations, for example, uh, before they came up with a very simple shape that they did. But I think in terms of having a, a mid-set wing of approximately that area and approximately that T over C, uh, thickness chord ratio and so on, uh, all that was set very much by Farnborough. Their aerodynamic knowledge came from their own experiments and knowledge, but um, I know that Miles did a lot of wind tunnel testing too and, uh, and added a lot to that. The power plant knowledge was contributed by Frank Whittle and uh, basically... Um, he based the design of the engine on his own W2700 engine, and I'll look at that in a bit more detail in a minute or two. And structural expertise, again, farmer scientists very much involved, um, but the aeroplane obviously was all metal, and at the time, Miles were actually trying to do more all metal work uh, because they had been an all wood company. And uh, from the scientific research sense, um, they had a good idea about what equipments and systems they needed in it. 
And uh, amongst those was um, a power flight control system, which was uh, relatively uh, innovative for its day. So it, it was a real challenge of all those disciplines, as all airplanes are, but uh, this was a pretty extreme one. Key issue was speed, and I, I find this a rather fascinating fact. I always assumed that um, it was based on confidence that they had, say, from Frank Whittle's calculations, that they decided to go not just for supersonic, to go for 1,000 miles per hour, because it takes someone with vision, doesn't it, to uh, say that. Well, there is a little statement as to how it has emerged. And apparently, it was a young lady in the Ministry of Aircraft Production who misread 1,000 kilometers per hour from some German papers that she been typing, and in the, in the UK paper, she typed 1,000 miles per hour, and nobody bothered to change it. Um, so it wasn't so much vision, was it? But uh, a bit of a blunder. But I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad they had uh, the sense to realize it was perhaps the place to go. It meant that you want to travel at about Mach 1.5 in the stratosphere if you want to achieve that. And I'd just put there at that time, few aircraft in the world could achieve half that speed, certainly in level flight. So it was extremely ambitious. Certainly when I was first told about this project, I was 20 years of age and, and my eyes opened. I couldn't believe that in Britain we had set such an incredible specification um, at, at such an early date. I put in a few little bits of aerodynamics here um, just to remind people of the, um, the problems that you have with supersonic aeroplanes. We're, we're used to this now with uh, plenty of military aircraft and Concorde about. But um, as you travel, here's an aeroplane at this point here. Um, if it emits sound, well, it must emit sound. If it travels faster than sound, while the sound has gone out this distance, one, if it's traveling at one and a half times the speed of sound, the aircraft reach here. And what happens is that a shock wave forms about a shock cone in three dimensions, which is um, centered on the aircraft. And you can calculate the angle of this, this shock angle uh, as a function of the, the Mach number with uh, some simple trigonometry. And it's about 42 degrees that, um, at Mach 1.5. And that means that uh, the aeroplane must really sit snugly in that. If bits of the aeroplane stick out of it, um, it doesn't mean to say it can't fly, but the, the drag penalty will be enormous. And um, so this led to consideration of an aircraft which had much, le much less span than anything we considered before. Uh, it was quite a, a unique configuration. I put, interestingly, no one had heard of area rule in those days. We've realized in more recent years that to get a good supersonic design, you have to tailor the cross-section of the aeroplane down the aircraft uh, so you get a very smooth transition of air flows. And um, in actual fact, because they chose such an intuitive, sensible, keep it simple design, uh, they had a relatively good area design uh, solution. And uh, they didn't need to, um, to worry too much about that. Uh, and that, I've just done a, a drawing there, which is based actually on the rocket models, which were produced later, um, just to show you that the, the span um, actually came very close to the cone that you might expect. And the center of gravity is, is up here, relatively well forward in the aeroplane. Um, and so here we've got an aeroplane which had a, a small wing. Um, for drag reasons, we minimized the thickness chord ratio of the wing. 
The frontal area was minimised to keep drag down, and it was a relatively short tail arm. You might say, why wasn't the tail further aft? Well, this is based on the models, which were a little bit longer in the tail, but even on the actual aeroplane, it looks as if it could have gone further aft, but um, there are a few uh, good reasons why that wasn't possible, and if I get the chance, I'll mention those. Um, I, I like it. I think it looks an aeroplane for the part, doesn't it? And uh, it must have been exciting to have uh, drawn that way back in, uh, in 1943 or so. So I've, I've based that on the rocket power model, which has straight leading edges uh, and outward uh, canted tips, but the actual aeroplane would have had curved leading edges, which we'll have a look at shortly. Here's some of the leading aerodynamic data. Um, most of this came to me via Dennis Bancroft, who was aerodynamicist at Miles, um, seemed to disappear from view, and uh, was found happy retirement in Cornwall a few years ago, and has written a lot about the project since, and really indebted that he's... Uh, and his mind is so alert um, uh, when, you, when you exchange com um, correspondence with him, some tremendous details from him. I've also got some information from Graham Gates, who was the apprentice at Miles at the time of the project, and when they um, uh, went bankrupt, he moved out to America and spent most of his life working at Piper and places like that. But he's... Uh, uh, also remembers the, the project with great affection. But there's some actual data. All the lifting surfaces were symmetrical by convex. That is that um, they didn't have any camber. They were equal coverture, top and bottom. Uh, they were just a convex section, so the thickest point was at the 50% cord. And, but the thickness cord ratio was a mere 7.5% of the root on the wing, and at the tip it was 4.02%. Interesting, when you look at Miles' traditional light aircraft, they built them in wood, true, um, but they did the thickest wings of anyone I've ever known, uh, and most of their designs were in excess of 18%, as much as 20% thickness to cord ratio, and it's one of the reasons they had beautiful handling characteristics. They had very smooth leading edges, whereas this was an aircraft with a, a very razor-sharp leading edge. The tail there, I've talked about the original tail there, um, and that um, was the plan from um, Miles to have a almost 50 square feet of wing area, slightly thinner than the wing. Um, there was some suggestion later in its development that they should increase the tail area by at least 10%, but that was a little bit of a disagreement between REE and Miles. Uh, there was a, a bigger tailplane designed, and it might well have been flown uh, if the aircraft had reached trials. Uh, trials that were done on an aeroplane we'll look at later uh, with uh, a model of the wing suggested, not trails, it's trials. Uh, you always manage to get a spelling mistake, don't you? Um, but um, it showed a CL max, I guess it's max and flat, so the, the figure I got the CL was 0.8, which is pretty poor. And um, but it does mean that it would have been a, a sprightly landing performance. But having said that, I doubt if it would have been uh, any worse than many of the uh, jet aircraft with the same sort of performance that came along later. It was a, a nicely balanced design in that respect. Um, wing instance was relatively small. And the flaps were plain flaps, 20 square feet area, about 6% of the span, and uh, about 15% of the cord depth. They couldn't put split flaps or anything complex on. The wing was far too thin, so they just used plain flaps. 
The wheel track was very, very small, barely four and a half feet, and it was a five foot diameter fuselage. The gear came straight over the fuselage, and in that way, it didn't uh, actually impinge on the, on the flaps. But it did mean it was uh, a bit of a spitfire in terms of wheel track. It was uh, very narrow. So it's always compromising design. Well, that's the aerodynamics. Let me have a look at the power plant. Um, I, what I've tried to do is produce some simple diagrams here. Um, a very crude cross-section of a, of a Whittle engine, um, and the, the W2700 here, uh, where there was a, a double-phase centrifugal compressor. Uh, so it drew air through these two light regions here, through the compressor, out into these reverse flow combustion chambers. So the air was pushed in and then flow back and came through a turbine and through a reaction cone out the back. The turbine was here, a nice short shaft for the compressor. Um, very typical of the, uh, the Whittle um, designs, and uh, in its time, uh, a very um, sensible design indeed. There was a lot of disagreement um, from some scientists, and, and from Haynes Constant in particular, who felt that Whittle was wrong to stay with the centrifugal and that he should have put more effort into axial compressors. Um, from what evidence I have, Sir Frank's feeling was, in the fullness of time, things would go axial, but initially, let's stay with these, which um, some people thought were just um, glorified super, um, superchargers. But in fact, uh, they, they were ideal for those kinds of generation of engine. This is where um, you see a bit of genius, in my opinion. Um, what Sir Frank wanted to do was to um, add onto the back of the standard W2700 um, what I think nowadays we call a free turbine. Uh, and it was a two-stage free turbine, so this was not linked to the rest of the engine in that you've got a center body. If you can see the gas passages here, I've drawn it in, I've colored it in red here beyond the, the reaction cone. I don't know if the cone was that long, but it would have been something of that order, I'm sure. Um, and then the outer bit of, the, of each of these turbines was actually a fan blade. So here it was hot and there it was cold, and it sucked air in here, uh, cold air, which I've shown blue here. So we had a, um, a dual jet pipe now, and um, we had what was called in later years an aft fan engine. So this was the first turbofan engine design. And uh, the bypass ratio is said to be about two to one. Um, it's very difficult to work it out from what drawings we've got. Um, but I do believe these turbine discs still exist at Farnborough. And it would be nice to have a look at them and, uh, in detail. Um, but there we are. That was a, a little bit of genius. But it doesn't end there. Sir Frank had one other thing on his um, mind. And that was that when you got to the end of the jet pipe, you put some combustors into this cold flow, and then you heated that up. Nowadays, it was called augmenter then. Nowadays, you call it an afterburner or reheat system. And, uh, and that way, you've got a tremendous augmentation of thrust. And in fact, it's a system which gives you more thrust the faster you fly when you get to high speeds or high altitude because of the, uh, the thermodynamic effects and so on. So it's a, a really innovative um, design of engine. And I think that is the, the heart of the aeroplane. That's where the majority of the, the goodness of the aeroplane would have come from.
So that's roughly as it looks. I hope I've illustrated it sensibly there. And this is uh, data taken from the specification I just showed you, which was produced in 1944, plotting the thrust against speed. And at sea level, with two different size exhausts, you can see that thrust decays very slightly as you go up in speed. That's very typical. But at high altitude, at 35,000 feet, um, as you increase speed, the thrust increases, which is absolutely crucial for you if you're to keep ahead of the, the wave drag that's forming as you go supersonic. When you use a rocket, as they use the rocket-powered um, uh, models that we'll look at in a little while, uh, and which the Bell X-1 used, um, a rocket, of course, is fairly flat, almost flat um, thrust characteristic. So this is where the jet, providing the exhaust doesn't get too hot, you don't leave reheat systems on for a long time, of course. And um, if I remember right, one of the problems the lightning was the... Uh, it used to cook the rear fuse lines quite happily. Um, so there we, we get some idea of the shape of this thing. Um, this is a, a drawing which John wielded in Enthusiast. Um, I worked on flight many years ago, and some of our artists used to say of John Wheel's drawings, oh, he makes them up. But I, I honestly have looked at this left, right, and center, and, and I... I really think it's a, as good a drawing based on the evidence we have as you could do of the M52. So uh, I chose to use it. It shows it with a small diameter jet pipe, so it's actually not got the augmenter system on here. But I've tried to highlight, there's the engine, and you can see it really filled the fuselage. Um, the intake was this narrow angular, uh, sorry, annular um, intake around this cone in which the pilot sat. Um, the, that was five foot diameter at maximum, so this was very small indeed. The nose gear was a trailing link, and it, it actually came up with a wheel between the pilot's legs. And uh, this whole system was detachable for escape. Uh, but you can see now we've got nearly all the, the mass of the, uh, the, the crew and the instruments and controls uh, and here, the, um, the engine, all concentrated. The fuel tank, I believe it's this red line here, and I have some notes with me talking about the design of the fuel tank. You had to keep it near the center of gravity, so roughly across the top of the wing here, um, but the, um, there was very limited volume, so there were several compartments, and they had to design quite a complex fuel system to make sure you emptied all the compartments simultaneously so that you didn't have the center of gravity move. At the same time, you've got to accommodate these strong frames for, the, uh, for carrying the, the loads from the wings. The frames were largely uh, aluminum and magnesium, I believe, uh, forged rather than uh, fabricated. I suspect John Wheel had to guess what the wing structure looked like, but from all the information that people like Dennis Bancroft and Graham Gates have left us, it looks about right. It was certainly a big steel spar, and, and then this biconvex section was formed by cutting two sheets of flat metal. Uh, they used aluminium, and it was, if I remember right, it was 10 gauge. It was three and a quarter millimeters thick which was relatively thick in those days, and um, although nothing like we're used to with milled wings on modern aircraft. 
Um, and when you cut the shape out, then you bent it convex, you ended up with a curvature. You got a part of a conic section. And that's why it had that very elegant look about it. Um, every time I used to see the drawings, I think, why has it got a curved leading edge and trailing edge? I couldn't see why they'd want that complexity. And as you might imagine, uh, it actually wasn't complexity. It was a result of simplifying the manufacture. The actual leading edge here, I suspect, was at a steel insert. I'm not sure. But I do know one of the problems that was still worrying, according to Graham Gates, uh, in 1946 was how you attach the skins to that leading edge section. They wanted to flush rivet it, that wasn't a problem, but the depths were very small and the integrity had to be extremely good. Um, I don't know if they resorted to using bonding of any sort. 1946 was a bit ahead of when Redux came along, um, but it would have been ideal to have had it riveted and bonded, of course. Um, but uh, interesting tremendous challenges and these are the kinds of issues that they were doing a lot of work on in miles uh, in that period 1944-1945 on the structural design uh, I said to you the frames of magnesium and light alloy castings um, wing skins four times thicker than normal skins uh, as used on most aircraft in production at the time and I've talked there about the uh, conically curved shape and um, it, I think it was, I can't remember if it was Dennis or Graham that gave me these figures. Um, they're exactly what you might expect, the bending moments and the shear forces at the roots. But um, to take a, a shear load of, in the order of 18 tonnes, uh, through that attachment was, um, was quite something. Ideally, you want to carry the load from the skin into the fuselage rather than just carry it through the spar. But uh, I don't think they ever achieved that. Um, they'd wanted to. Um, um, I think the, the only way actually they would have done it is to have a rib there and have riveted the rib to the fuselage. Perhaps that's what they did. Um, but uh, it was some tremendously innovative, uh, well, I say innovative, some very um, punishing design, challenging design issues uh, to address in the design of this aircraft. That's the overall mass estimate that I have. Um, I took this from Don Brown's records that he left me, and um, several people said to me, never trust any of Don's, he, he, was, he was never um, diligent about things. And I jotted these down, and when I totted them up, this is a, the total it comes to, but Don's records say 7,710. Uh, so um, you do have to check a lot of the data that's been left behind. Um, the wing looks a pretty heavy weight to me, but then there is a lot of steel in it, but there's no allowance for tail, so I'm assuming that might be all the lifting services. The fuselage, similar mass, about half a ton each. The fuel was 200 gallons. The power plant was roughly a ton, but um, there was evidence in some papers that the weight was increasing, and uh, power jets were certainly having great difficulty um, producing... Um, that free turbine and the great jet pipe and the augmenter um, to the kind of weights that they, they were hoping to get. Um, the landing gear, 450 pounds. Controls were 150 pounds. That's for a boosted flight control system. The pilot, 200 pounds. I've only ever met Winkle for the first time tonight, but uh, I think that's a pretty generous weight estimate for Winkle. Um, 
But then, um, I don't know whether that includes, um, you know, the um, oxygen supply, parachute, all the other things that you might have had to. Equipment was uh, 468, according to that. The um, Bell X-1, which is the aeroplane that uh, eventually was the first aircraft through Mach 1, uh, was almost twice that weight. Interesting. Um, so it was a very small aircraft. Um, if you remember the following net, it was down at that size, or even smaller in many respects. It was a, quite a small aircraft. I've tried to recreate the geometry um, just to get a feel. I was given a nose wheel diameter, and I don't believe it. When you put it in there, it, it goes to the instrument panel, and wheels drawing through it show something smaller. So I left it as it was given to me. This was interesting. Some um, drawings that Graham Gates had done, out of memory, showed this curving here. It can't do, to be honest. And when you see, I've got a picture of the, the capsule. Um, it is flat there, but I left those as it was. And this is where we have great difficulty, really, finding the true details of it. But I put a, a five foot six mannequin in there, and uh, you, you can see it's as tight as you ever want uh, um, anything to be. All the instrumentation had to be there as well, that 468 pound or so of um, uh, recording equipment. And I gather some of it was put in the nose, uh, but a lot of it, to, I guess, might have been shoved under the seats. But it must have been a very crowded capsule indeed. And the engine was in here, just after the nose. I've suggested here, I'd, I'd love to get some students to build a, a mock-up of this for a museum or something. It, it would be lovely to see a, um, a full-scale model of it. But um, that's a personal wish. But if anybody agrees with me, let's keep going on to museums about it. There's a picture of the capsule. And this is a mock-up which was built at Miles. And as I said to you, you can see it's perfectly flat uh, until you get beyond where the, um, uh, the transparency finishes. And then the curvature is here. And that is absolutely crucial to get that curvature right, to get the expansion through the intake and to capture the, the shock wave off the lip, outer lip of the intake before you get to these attachments uh, and to slow the air down. Um, there are a very limited downward viewing angle. Several times Don said to me when he was talking about Miles light aircraft, they, they love plexiglass um, um, big windows, uh, that they got a lot of distortion in them. But I gather that um, they weren't expecting a lot of distortion in this, according to Dennis Bancroft. Um, that it was a simple curvature and uh, they thought they'd have a, a good distortion, relative distortion free view through there. And a couple of weeks ago I just thought to ask of Dennis, do you know what the instruments were that were in the cockpit? And I haven't brought his letter with me, but he listed all 22 of them. How's that for a memory? Um, and uh, I thought there'd be much fewer than that, but uh, obviously you you're going to have to uh, watch a few, a few needles there. Um, very tight, and the whole idea was that this whole thing could be detached with explosive bolts, and that you could then, the, the crew in the event of an emergency could cut themselves off from the aircraft and then open the uh, canopy, the transparency area, and, uh, and bail out in the ordinary fashion. So obviously, any emergency had to be at a decent altitude, um, to give enough time for all this to happen. Um, but effort was given to try and give some crew survivability. But it was far from ideal. Um, the nose gear was unsteerable and it had to be stowed in there. As I've said, very compact design. 
This is taking the drawing I just showed you and the drawing I got the engine before, put them together to the same scale, and you see how long that jet pipe is. Um, most of the aircraft's mass was in this forward section. I haven't tried to draw the fuel tanks in, but they're around here, which is not ideal because you've got rotating machinery underneath them, you've got hot jet pipes there, but at least with having this uh, augmenter design, we had a relatively cool flow around the... Uh, in the outer jet pipe, and this um, there was some cooling flow in the fuselage uh, outside of that. This is the intake that I think was really uh, a source of several issues. The air came through this very thin angle intake, and then it was sucked in by the two centrifugal compressors. Some air went back and went into the um, bypass duct, a small proportion, much less than that relatively large arrow would suggest perhaps, would then leak down and just cool, um, provide some cooling down the fuselage. The assumed intake pedo efficiency was 90%, which is less than you would expect on a modern design, and um, I think was probably very realistic. Uh, certainly Graham felt it was, but some US military observers saw this aircraft in 1946, and their first question was, would that plenum chamber arrangement have worked for the engine? And I'm no great aerodynamicist, but I can honestly say to you, it seems to meet all the criteria that are sensible. Uh, I, I give it a, a good chance of having done so. Um, it was, without a doubt, probably the most risky bit of the, of the design. But uh, having said that, there's plenty more risk innovation here. I've drawn the augmenters right at the back here. Um, and I assumed they were there, but some recent notes from Dennis suggested to me they might have been much further up. And the reason why I say that is that the tailplane was attached about here, and I assumed that the, one of the reasons for attaching it there was to keep it ahead of the hottest part of the fuselage, um, because you would have um, some hydraulic <laughs> fluid there, you want not want to get too hot. But um, Dennis said to me, oh, there, there were... They weren't uh, forward of the augmenters at all. So um, it'll be interesting to see if we can find out exactly where those uh, augmenter combustion chambers were actually located. Just a quick look at the systems, as I've spent most of my life in aircraft systems. It had power-boosted flying controls, almost certainly electrical. Um, I did mention hydraulics there. Um, I, I suspect they would have liked to use hydraulics, but I'm, I'm almost certain it was electrical. And the reason I say that is that Mars did a lot of work in electrical systems in that period, which then came back into Mars aircraft. They were the first people in this country were looking at um, things like electric autopilots for light aircraft. Uh, and interestingly, Don Brown's interest in that is what took him to Smith Industries and got him involved with um, the flight control team there that did the Trident automatic landing system. And it was him that recruited me into that team so in some respects, there's the beginning of my career, uh, although I wasn't even born at that time, but certainly the, uh, the, uh, the events that led up to there being an industry that I could enjoy some time with. Um, it had a, a VHF radio. There was talk of a retractable aerial, but I'd, I've never seen one on a drawing. I suspect it was just a, a small blade somewhere. They were intended to put 23 galvometers in, um, which were attached to sensors at several points, and largely they were looking at aerodynamic loads on the aeroplane. Uh, they might look at a few other uh, physical issues as well. And there was a desire for um, an oscilloscraft recorder 
to look at structural dynamic data. Um, Graham sent me this information, I think, but coming down the train, I was looking at some work of, of Dennis's, and it seems to quote exactly the same things. The booster jacks, as they were called, um, were tested for smoothness, irreversibility, freedom from oscillation, overload cases. Interesting, they were doing all the classic um, quality uh, tests and uh, performance tests that you'd expect of, of a modern FCS, and we're talking about 1944-45 here. The expected load was uh, 1,200 pounds, so they were tested up to um, 1,800 pounds, and um, he talks about later when loads were applied, which were like manual, if you'd have lost the, the power, um, he talks, I don't know why, he says it's 43 over 5, which I can only um, interpret as being 8.6 seconds, but 10 pound load took 8.6 seconds to move the jack full travel, a 50 pound load achieved it in 2.6 seconds. They sound very long times to me, uh, but having said that, that's full travel. And, uh, but clearly, uh, like all aircraft of later generations with power controls, if you did lose power and you had to go to manual, um, they do get extremely heavy and uh, much, more, much less responsive. And it would have been a very critical issue on that particular aeroplane, I'm sure. Um, not a lot of information stays, but um, it would be uh, an interesting area to, uh, to look more deeply into. These are some of the wind tunnel models. Um, Dennis believes there are at least 13 wind tunnel models produced. Um, some were metal, and these are, are two very well-known pictures of the metal models they had. The smallest one was a 36 scale. It was literally about one foot long, and it was put in a vertical tunnel at MPL um, where they could run it at uh, high Mach numbers. The comments that have come back are that the results were not very reliable because you did get um, shock waves reflected back off the walls of the tunnel uh, onto the model, um, and you just hoped they were far enough back that they didn't um, invalidate the basic aerodynamic data for the wing and so on. Um, but because of reflected shocks, they did have a few problems in, in uh, having confidence in their drag figures. But uh, with hindsight, it appears that they did do a, a good job of predicting design, as we will see. Um, this is one of the bigger models. This was roughly 1.6 scale. I'm told it was 1.6.1 scale model. It was tested at REE. It was tested at Mars Wind Tunnel. I think John Chaplin's here. Did, did, I think John might have uh, even played with that model um, from what I was told. Um, but um, these were obviously low speed tunnel, uh, low speed models. And it was concerns with the stability uh, characteristics of this that made REE ask for a bigger tailplane. And uh, the idea was that they were just going to extend the, uh, the span of the tail, actually, uh, keep the rest as small as possible. So it got even thinner. It got down to about 3.8 something percent um, uh, T over C at the end. Um, but um, although that was designed, um, it was not preferred by Miles, and uh, I don't think it was ever actually, uh, that one was ever actually produced. Tremendous amount of work, anyway. Um, I mentioned that lift coefficient, which was obtained from trials. This is the aircraft that it, it um, was achieved on. It's a Miles Falcon on which they put one of these wings. Uh, it was 160 square feet, a little bit larger than the um, actual 
uh, M52 wing would have been. It just had straight um, leading edge and trailing edge. Uh, it flew on the 11th of August 44, and they positioned at Farnborough. The majority of trials, in miles at least, were conducted by Hugh Kennedy. Uh, maybe Winkle flew it, perhaps will tell us later. Um, it was not ideal, had a very thin undercarriage because all the landing gear loads had to go into the fuselage, but uh, it was called a Gillette Falcon. And um, for obvious reasons, for those of you that might use Gillette, probably Mac 3 or whatever it is these days. Um, which, um, but it clearly was not uh, as good a, a wing in terms of generation lift at high angle of attack as you, you might have wished. And this aircraft was actually flown later with an all moving. So they actually tested the, the, the stability characteristics or the, the stick force and so on of the, uh, the all moving tail. This is um, data which I've got to attribute to Dennis. You can see it's been a tremendous mine of information. And um, he has produced these drawings, I don't know if they're from records or from his memory, uh, of what the altitude and speed profiles against distance would have been for the aircraft. And you can see there that um, the idea was that you take off, you climb very steeply, and um, within 20 miles you're up above 30,000 feet, which would have been phenomenal in those days, and pretty exciting for most people today. And um, you are accelerating initially and then hold uh, subsonic speed throughout the uh, upper part of the stratosphere, and at 50,000 feet or so, after about 40 miles, start to dive, uh, augment is engaged, the aircraft accelerating very rapidly and level at 36,000 feet uh, at 1,000 miles per hour and um, there's your level flight regime uh, of about um, 30 miles which um, at that sort of speed um, is only a relatively short period of time indeed. When you came to the end of that, and my guess is it might have been the uh, augmenter uh, wouldn't uh, you couldn't leave it on for much longer than that period of time. When that was disconnected, the idea was that you zoomed to lose energy, uh, lost speed, the gliding turn, uh, and glided back uh, at approximately um, high subsonic speed, and then eventually dropped the flaps and everything at the back end, and, uh, and did your approach and landing. And uh, duration of that would have been about 20 minutes. God, wouldn't it be nice? It would have been great if we could have done that. Again, Dennis has, as you'd expect from aerodynamicists, um, tried to produce evidence of how good their drag estimate was. Um, that, he says, was the drag curve that they had for the aeroplane. A classic aircraft drag curve here with induced drag at low speed, uh, profile drag here, but then the wave drag clipping in and, uh, and that, that it comes after you've got the initial wave drag, it increases a much slower race. And you can see here that if you've got an engine with a thrust line that's going up here, you have a chance of um, of meeting the um, of meeting the, the idea of being able to achieve a thousand miles per hour in level flight. Dennis muses that if the thrust had been achieved at a, a lower ambient temperature, only 10 degrees centigrade lower, you'd have got substantially more thrust, and that would have been good and that the, the data they got from the 1948 models suggested their drag curve would have been there. And um, his thrust estimates were based on, on this information here. He wrote this up in an article that he published, and, and he very acidly at the end of it says, it's no good arguing about this, the whole project was to show whether it was possible or not, wasn't it? 
and uh, quite right. Um, we, uh, we were hoping to find out if this was possible. Well, sadly, the project was brought to a halt around about that point. I'm going to produce to you here a couple of memos which uh, went round and which um, Dennis has been, uh, and Peter Amos, the Mars Collection, have been very um, germane to finding. Uh, and this is one which was sent out on the 22nd of January, 1946. And I, I guess DFCP is um, Director of Contracts at the Director General of Technical Development. It's a secret memo, and it says, the contract covering the supply of prototype aircraft to this specification and additional bare airframes was placed with Mars Aircraft on 13th of December 1943 as a matter of urgency. But the progress so far made does not seem to have been very rapid. If you are like me, you will be a little bit suspicious of that statement. This is barely uh, over two years later, and uh, here we were playing with a very innovative project. What did this man expect? The firm had spent £73,000 up to 30th of November, i.e. over about two years, and estimates it will cost, in total, a quarter of a million pounds to complete. This chap suggests, in these circumstances, you may wish to reconsider the project. If it is decided that it should continue, would you please obtain additional financial approval on the basis of the above estimate of final cost? I find it very difficult to do a, a, a very easy calculation, but my rule of thumb would be that a man year of effort in the industry with all the overheads in those days, given aviation is relatively expensive in terms of overheads, you might have got a man year for £1,000 in those days. If that was the case, Miles has spent £73,000, probably got 73 man years, uh, over two years, um, 30 to 40 people working on the project in that period. That seems to fit in with the knowledge we have. What they've achieved, I think, in that period was magnificent. But this director of contracts clearly doesn't agree with that. I've put a little comment at the bottom there, which is my own observation. I think it indicates a, a very um, level of indifference in the government towards the project. Uh, it certainly is not um, full of enthusiasm for it. But coincidentally, I'm not into conspiracy theories. This was the very day that Frank Whittle resigned from Power Jets. So the very day that Frank Whittle resigned from Power Jets, a secret memo went out to consider the cancellation of the M52. And there are a lot of people who say to me it was Frank Whittle that a lot of the Mandarins wanted to um, punish, if I can call it that. Um, rather than anybody else. I find that very sad indeed if uh, our technical capability comes down to people slugging each other for uh, a little bit of um, uh, personal infighting. The cancellation itself came barely a month later. This is the, the memo from Sir Ben Lockspizer, Director General of um, uh, SR, what is now Scientific Research, um, to the Director of Aeronautical Research Development and it is a very curt memo. This is actually the whole of it, to the best of my knowledge. We must cut our losses and cancel the contract on this aircraft. The matter was fully discussed at the last meeting of the Supersonic Committee. Let me stop there and just say that the Supersonic Committee was um, completely uh, um, involved 
people from REE and from other government departments. No one from Miles Aircraft was on that committee. So they had no say in what was decided at that committee. Great pity. And I've just subsequently discussed the matter with the firm. We don't know what was said or whom we discussed it with. There will be no tears anywhere except perhaps at PJs, at Powerjets. And again, this terribly disappointing oblique reference to, you know, let's smack Powerjets. But we are not paying quarter million pounds to test an engine. And those are the actual words. I believe the conception behind the decision to build this aircraft was to get supersonic information. We now know that was putting the cart before the horse. No more supersonic aircraft till our rocket propel models, propel models and wind tunnels have given us enough information to proceed on a reliable basis. So a lot of hostilities of power jets there. I just find it incredible. I don't know if, how many of you here were involved with power jets, but I haven't met anybody that actually worked with that firm that found anything wrong with them. But of course there was this tremendous argument about whether they should be allowed to manufacture aircraft, uh, sorry, engines, or whether they should just be a research organisation. And of course Frank Whittle uh, fought very hard to make sure that they were given the ability to design and build engines, not just do research. And that was where a lot of the hostility came from. What I find is interesting in this is that there is no management being unfair to ask the pilot to fly the aircraft which is an excuse that has been quoted in many press um, reports on the project. But my great sadness, apparently no regret at throwing away what was a lot of expertise. So, um, very sad, 20th of February 1946, that's when uh, the axe fell. About a month later, um, there is a report that uh, the Director General, uh, or Director of Engines R&D, had agreed to the cancellation recommendation um, but then they looked at the, the contract and it said here that uh, £73,000 had been spent, as I said earlier, and there was a further £40,000 of work completed, um, which suggests in that six-month period from uh, when the 73000 was quoted before that about 80 people worked on the project. And Don Brown always said to me there were about 80 people worked on the project, so presumably it had ramped up to that level. So they got £40,000 to cover that, £3,000 to clear the jigs, £25,000 for special materials unused, and then £25,000 for outstanding liabilities, presumably with undercarriage manufacturers, transparencies, booster jacks, and that sort of thing. The accounts, I rather pointedly, say, look, it would have cost us £250,000. We've managed to cut this at uh, £166,000, and so we have saved £84,000. And uh, it does say completing three airframes. And that's interesting. Were there really three airframes? This is uh, a little timetable of events. Um, there's a lot of things going on which I could have added to this, but there I've just drawn that top line. The first meeting, October 1943 or so, the Gillette Falcon flew uh, um, a little while later, about six, seven months later. The aircraft was, was cancelled barely a month after Frank Whittle resigned from Powerjet in 1946. The DH-108 programme, which was probably the most significant uh, high-speed programme uh, in the UK at the time, was sanctioned around that time. I don't know how much work de Havilland had done before that date, but I suspect quite a bit. 
and uh, sadly, Jeffrey DeHaven Jr. was killed in that aeroplane barely six months later. Mars aircraft were into receivership barely uh, 18 months later as well. And if there is a, a story that's still got to be told about Mars aircraft, about many of the companies, is how did the cancellation come about? Um, Don was a good friend of Sir Frank Whittle, and he always said to me, all his friends worked hard to get him to turn um, Jet, the, the uh, story of Pioneer, the book into something that was printable because he spoke his mind too openly about people that had been hostile to him. Um, I will say that on Don Brown's deathbed, uh, he left some notes with me on which I feel very similarly uh, what he has to say about certain members of the banking community and how they bankrupt Miles Aircraft. Um, with hindsight, there was a lot more to it, certainly, than, than Don had got on to. But uh, I think um, there was a feeling that the aircraft industry had to contract post-1945 uh, and um, the Miles debacle was almost um, inevitable. And uh, once they lost this contract in particular, um, they didn't have a, a, a loss in terms of cash flow. Meanwhile, let me just point out this line at the bottom. Um, the first free view of a Bell X-1 was sent to uh, NACA round about the time the Gillette Falcon flew. Uh, the X-1 was rolled out um, in the late end of 45. Um, it did a lot of gliding flights being dropped from the um, B-29 in 1946. The first power flight was in late 46, and it was almost a year before it went to Mach 1. And, of course, they did very small increments. They, they developed that program uh, in as less, least risky a manner as possible. And so that took the, um, took the prize for being the first aircraft to, to Mach 1. UK-US information exchange. It is alleged on dates that have not been recorded that engineers from Bell attended miles. I've actually got here a paper which Don Brown delivered to Gapan in 1966 about the early days of the jet and um, in here he says that they were visited by some Americans, the party arrived and was shown everything. Moreover, it included representatives of the Bell Company which was known to be interested in the development of high-speed research aircraft. Application to the Ministry for permission to pay a reciprocal visit to the Bell Company was summarily refused. Uh, the year following the cancellation of the M52, the air launch that Bell X-1 became the first aeroplane to exceed the speed of sound. Don was always very angry about this. There is no record anywhere of a US visit to Miles uh, until, quite recently, we found a document which... I believe was unearthed by George Miles' son-in-law. It's a U.S. military intelligence report from 1946, and they were taken around Woodley about six months after the cancellation. What is interesting in that memo is that they do say that one aircraft was complete, and the other aircraft, I believe it said, was 80% complete. And that's the best record we have as to how far the aircraft got. There are no photographs, for example, of showing the fuselage, the wings attached. But there are several people who say, I'm, I'm sure I saw it, the wings attached, but nobody has been absolutely open and said, you know, I can definitely say I did on such a date or whatever. 
So historically, it's quite difficult to determine just how far the programme had got, but it would appear that Mars had succeeded in virtually building two airframes by the time it was cancelled. How much were they influenced? There's um, the official drawing of the M52. There's a picture of the X1. Um, as I've shown to you, the configuration drawing for the X1 was delivered to, to NACA uh, about the time, the, just after the M52 was started. And if it was influenced by the Miles aeroplane, it would in, uh, significantly say that the Bell visit was very early on in the project. Whereas from what Dennis Bancroft is recording now, probably we hadn't quite determined the, the configuration in detail at that point. So um, I don't think it had as big an influence as some commentators have suggested. Um, but what is definitely a case is that this was an all-moving tail and um, almost certainly uh, American scientists hadn't quite realised the significance of that until they talked to people at Farnborough. And uh, it was important for that project. So progress. Um, what uh, what was built and when? Th there is disagreement of what was sanctioned. Two or three airframes. I said the contract that was cancelled specified three airframes. We believe that the idea was that there would be um, two airframes for flying, one for initial trials without an augmenter, one for the uh, final high-speed trials, and that a third airframe would have been used for structural testing. Um, that would seem logical and is probably the case. The only written evidence of two airframes together is this US military intelligence report. And um, they wrote this report the 11th of July 1946, three days after they visited Woodley. Out of interest, the, I, I've only just got this recently and um, I'd love to get it authenticated. Um, but uh, it's got a list of people that it was sent to in the US defense community and they're all acronyms, you know, all few um, titles, DG, whatever, and all the rest of it. But then it says embassies, and it says Romania and Bulgaria. Read what you wish into that. Several people have said there were two airframes at Reading. I've certainly got one friend who says that um, Don always said to him there were two, but I can't recall him saying it. It is believed but not confirmed that one might have gone to Farnborough for static testing, but um, that's almost conjecture because we don't know where they got to. Um, RF serial numbers, Peter Amos informs me, were allocated for the first two aircraft. So um, that there were certainly two airframes that uh, were going to carry serials. Well, we'd cancelled the program, so what we did is we had some rocket power models. Um, there were about 10 of them built, I believe, 10 or 12. Three of them were launched, if I can call it that, from under the Havilland Mosquito. They were quite large models, if you look there, weighed nearly half a tonne about one-third scale. Uh, the first one detached in turbulence, so the aircraft took off, it was over the, um, just off the Welsh coast, over the Irish Sea, came out of cloud and found <coughs> the models disappeared. Um, so I went back to Aberporth and wherever with red faces. Um, they released the model uh, in October, but the engine uh, failed to ignite and it just plummeted to the ground and was lost onto the sea. But thankfully, uh, a year later, they flew a model off. It demonstrated a 1,000 miles per hour, and for all the people um, that were associated with the project, they feel that was a vindication, in a way, um, that, uh, that the thing would actually work. And I still put Don's old weight in there, 7710 pounds, but I should have 
reduce that to just over 7,000 for his weight. Um, forgive me for calling these overground toys, but, you know, they're not the same as a real thing. But this is what staggers me. I've said possibly in the order of half a million pounds. I'm assured that program cost in excess of half a million pounds. What was it they were saving by cancelling the project? 84,000? It was, uh, it was a nice way to enjoy playing with, uh, with research, but not actually getting us to the leading edge of, uh, of the technology. I won't wax too much about that. Cancellation consequences, well, if we just look at, for the UK, um, it was eight and a half years before the English Electric P1A flew, which was the first aircraft capable of Mach 1 plus in level flight, uh, and one and a half years later was when uh, Peter Twist took the world record first time in excess of 1,000 miles an hour in the FD2, and uh, thank heavens that was for the UK, um, but that's the last time we held the world record. We've not had it since. So it was a whole decade, roughly, um, to reach attainment that perhaps we were in months of attaining, and uh, as such, uh, a great pity. Why was it cancelled? Well, we might be able to debate this at some length. I'm sure we will tonight. But Dennis Bancroft compiled 14 reasons, um, and he's tried to discount them. One, one issue that, that he came up with that was very significant is that he thought at one point it was Barnes-Wallace that was um, keen to kill it because he didn't want for his pilots, and this is where the idea that it was cancelled because of not risking pilots came from. There's no evidence that that was the case. Um, it might well be true, but, uh, but certainly the rocket model contract went to Vickers, to Barnes-Wallace's company. I think it was really political expediency. There were 1946, there were pretty dire years post-war. We were trying to recover the nation's economy. Um, civil servants had to be careful. They didn't show that they were wasting money. Um, aircraft development was not seen, although it was in the wartime, um, it was seen as good. Come peacetime, it wasn't seen to be so important. And uh, I think it was, sadly, um, a victim, in some respects, of some poor thinking there. But to me, the resignation of Frank Whittle from Powerjets in the days before the cancellation was almost certainly um, one of the reasons why. There was certainly some part of the community, the research community, that really felt, let's get rid of any evidence of, um, let's say, a power jet aircraft being the first one to 1,000 miles an hour because it would only add to Frank Whittle's um, credibility. Sad, because it would have done, I think, uh, and it would have been right that it would have done. George Miles was uh, stating a letter to someone in 1951 that uh, I thought fairly magnanimously, really, that he thought there was a misinterpretation of data from Germany on the value of Delta wings, which caused the aircraft to be cancelled. Um, in fact, Dennis Bancroft has already written up reports or produced evidence in reports from 1946 that they were looking at whether a Delta wing would have been a better way of doing it um, already then. So, to finish it off, quick review. It was conceived well ahead of any equivalent vision. Uh, it was based on what has proved to be credible technical concepts, and it was cancelled really by political whim, albeit that it was a time of great stringency in the nation. I believe its cancellation was a severe setback to progress in UK aviation. I think it did make scientists have to look at going more incrementally 
and it might have been less risky, but sometimes you don't succeed if you don't take risks. Why did virtually nothing survive? Well, there are three things that do survive, um, thankfully. There's some engine parts at FAST at the Farnborough uh, Air and Science Trust Museum at Farnborough. If any of you have not been there, wonderful little museum. And uh, if I remember right, the, the, the two free turbines are there, which, um, so you can see those. And uh, there's a metal wind tunnel at, um, I think it's the North Berkshire Museum at Woodley. And amazingly, I know about this until a few weeks ago, the first of those rocket power models that disappeared whilst in cloud apparently turned up in some trawler's nets in Cardigan Bay <laughs> about 20 years ago. Poor fishermen thought it was a bomb, um, left it on the beach, eventually... People came to look at it, said it wasn't a bomb, but what the devil was it? And when it was identified, um, it was restored. It's now on display at Aria Cosford, and I confess I've never seen it. So um, the actual first model apparently does survive in that form at Cosford. That, ladies and gentlemen, is um, what I have to say about the M52. I hope it's been an interesting review, and I certainly look forward to uh, some exciting debate. Well, Mike, thank you very much. Come and have a seat and be uh, ready to receive some comments and questions. Uh, I'm sure there will be uh, quite a few. Um, and to open the discussion, uh, I'm going to extend an invitation to Captain Brown, Winkle Brown, one of the most distinguished test pilots in the world, who was... I believe, uh, designated as project pilot for this aircraft while it was under construction. So, Captain Brown, uh, do sit if you wish. Uh, do you mind if I turn my back? You otherwise... Not at all. No, no. I no. have to stand, otherwise they won't see me. Yeah, yes, yes. Well, it's best to face them, otherwise they might go to sleep, you see. Right. I always find it's best to face well, them. Well, I'll really confine my remarks to the piloting side. Now, why was I chosen to be the pilot of this aircraft? Well, it was basically an RAE monitored project. Now, this isn't unique. There have been three such projects in my time. There was the um, M52, the Bolton Paul P111, of which I was also nominated as the pilot, and then the Handley Page 115. All of these were RAE-monitored projects, all to be flown by RAE pilots, not by company pilots, because they required a breadth of experience that wasn't available to company pilots. Now, in my case, my major factor was size. <laughs> Here you have this cockpit, and it really was very cramped indeed. But for a person of my stature, it was reasonably comfortable. Secondly, of course, I had been flying jets for a considerable time, and um, there was no Miles pilot who had any jet experience. And above all, I'd been flying transonic testing in the 
high-speed flight at Farnborough, and that was essential too when you're dealing with a very fast aircraft of this type. Now, what did I think of it? I believed absolutely that we could achieve the object, but it was going to be tight. My main concern was the amount of fuel that was available to attain the flight profile which Mike showed you on the on one of his slides there. Um, however, we would be flying in an area where there were a lot of airfields. Around Farnborough, in fact, airfields were like fleas in a dog's back. And if you flew over there, you had a, a fair chance of getting away with it. Particularly with airfields like Boscombe Down in there, with a very long runway. Indeed, Peter Twist was faced with the same situation in the FD2. And uh, therefore, I had a fair bit of confidence that this would be all right. Now, in the process, the people I was mainly working with were Maureen Morgan, who many of you will know at Farnborough, and P.A. Houghton. And we used to go up to Reading and have um, discussions there. And it was interesting because in the Miles team... Although I don't know if she was officially on the minutes, was Dear Blossom was always there. And now and then she put in her pennyworth, and um, it wasn't um, unusual for it to be quite to the point. However, things progressed in the way that you know have now been defined to you, and we come to this strange business where we gave all our data to the United States and got nothing in return. There was a message from the Pentagon that they were not allowed to give us any data because it was secret. I don't know what they thought ours was. <laughs> be that as it may, it's interesting. In the last two months, I have received a letter from an aerodynamicist at Edwards Air Force Base who was involved in the X project, X1, and he said he was aware of this, but you got no data because we didn't have any. You were so far ahead of us in this field at that time that we were virtually put to shame and we didn't have any. And on the question of the all-moving tailplane, certainly the United States knew about it, but I have no evidence of them having actually flown a full-scale um, flying tailplane. Now, I flew such a tailplane on the Spitfire in October, November of 1944. So, we actually had one, and then it was flown again. I flew it on the Miles Falcon. Now, that Miles Falcon with a biconvex wing and the moving tailplane was not an easy airplane to fly. Um, you had to be very, very careful that you didn't make excessive longitudinal stick movements, particularly on takeoff or on landing. If you did, you had the danger of getting a flat plate effect from 
the, an, an excessive angle of attack. And uh, it was touchy. One has to accept that. But my view was it, nothing was going to be perfect for the project, but we had a, a possibility that this would be good enough. In my opinion, it was good enough to go ahead and have a go at it. And that's how it should have been. But there we are. That's it's eventually, of course, as you know, it came to nothing because of the uh, political, shall I say, cancellation. But just one word before I finish. Um, about the question of it being dangerous to the pilot. When the cancellation was made, I was not in any way consulted on this, nor do I know of anybody at Farnborough that was. So I rushed round in high dudgeon to beard the lion in his den, because Sir Benlock spies had lived just round the corner from me at Farnborough. And um, he received me very courteously, but he was a man, humanitarian type of man, and he said, try to convince me, or I wouldn't say convince me, but he said that there was a feeling that this was a dangerous project. I disagreed with him very vigorously, of course, but got nowhere. And um, I have read Dennis Bancroft's views on what really lay behind the cancellation. And one interesting fact I'll leave you with. We tried to find copies of the minutes of this secret meeting. Never could. But what we have unearthed is the secretary who wrote the minutes. She's now in her 90s, or was, I, I don't know if she's alive now, she was when we found her about two years ago. And we asked her straight if what was in the minutes, the reasons given in the minutes for the cancellation, were in fact valid. Is this actually what was said? And she refused to comment further than to say, I am still subject to the Official Secrets Act. But let me say this. She said, the reasons were more sinister than those given in the minutes. And that was all she would say. But it leaves you with a very intriguing question mark. Indeed, yes. <laughs> thank you. Finally, it was a superb presentation, and I thank you. You've done quite a few things in there that uh, refreshed my memory and indeed expanded my knowledge of them. Thank you. Okay. Thanks very much. Well, who will be next? Ian Whittle, I believe, wanted to speak. Yes, sir. Eddie, to say thank you very much, Michael, that was terrific. Um, I've also learned an awful lot today. And Eric, thank you again for what you've just said, too. That's terrific. Um, with respect to the W2700 engine, which was quite a good piece of equipment, I think I'm right in saying, am I, that with the aft fan and the uh, reheat, that it was uh, projected to produce 5,000 pounds of thrust. Is that correct? Did you, do, do you know anything about that? Um, I, 
I think you can say it will produce 5,000 pounds of thrust roughly at high speed, at high altitude, but at, at 1,000 miles an hour. Oh, okay, fine. Uh, that, that's something I wasn't too sure about. And I can confirm, for those of you who are interested, that my the, the cancellation of this augmented W2700 w was a great, uh, did cause my father a great deal of distress, uh, as also did the cancellation of his uh, front fan engine with an axial compressor, the LR1. Uh, the cancellation of that and a turboprop project um, were the three... Uh, bitterest blows to my poor old dad. So uh, anyway, again, thank you very much for yours. Thank you. Was your hand up over the over to the back? Yes, Patrick. Patrick Castle. Perhaps people could announce their name, please. So we have got that on record too. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick Castle. Um, it's clear that Miles were uh, not the originators of the project. As you showed, they were invited to uh, design and build this aeroplane. Um, is it known who actually was the, the first begetter of the uh, idea of producing an aircraft of this type? Uh, and it was interesting that um, uh, DSR was not at that original meeting, but sent his deputy. Thank you. The simple answer, Patrick, is that we don't know exactly. It, it almost certainly came from within the ministry. Um, it seems very logical to look at the work that had been done at Farnborough with high-speed flight to expect them to want to do a supersonic project. Uh, and if I am to um, be, be led to be correct in terms of the, the misprint of the kilometres per hour to miles per hour, we might have, um, the um, scientists might have wanted to do a 1,000 kilometre per hour aeroplane. Um, but at that point, it becomes very vague. And as I, I stated, the, the configuration, I feel, has a lot of farmberness about it. But uh, Dennis Bancroft is quite convinced that uh, Miles had a big influence on the configuration. Certainly the detailed design of it was all Miles. Um, and it's very difficult to um, be sure of exactly um, where the design originated in that respect. But I think you can say it was a, a joint certainly a joint design, a very close joint design, and I was quite intrigued that, that Winkle said there that he was in the habit of going to Woodley and meeting them. I think there was a lot of exchange of information between those two close teams. Thank you. Um, Kate Pine. Uh, good evening. Uh, my name is, is Kate Pine. I, I'm a professional historian, and uh, I spend a lot of my time researching, uh, my free time that is, researching this particular aircraft. In fact, that's where I spent the last three or four hours this afternoon at the National Archives. What I, I can tell you is, is that the, <clears throat> the minutes of the Supersonic Committee are the committee that evolved into the Supersonic Committee in 1943, around about May, clearly show that the, uh, the, the uh, interrogation records of German prisoners of war led them to believe that the, the Germans were working on supersonic aeroplanes and clearly, they thought that this would give them an advantage in combat. So the idea was kicked around various people and evolved into a determination to build a supersonic aircraft. And as you've explained, the, the contract was awarded to Miles Aircraft. And, and uh, it seems to have come about because, as you say, um, they had some uh, spare capacity. And also, they'd, they'd just been turned down for building... Um, an aircraft that ultimately turned into the Brabazon. 
which would have been an even bigger jump, perhaps, than, <laughs> than the supersonic aircraft. Mm. Uh, and the other thing I want to add is that these papers also show that the M52 definitely had a hydraulic-powered control system, flying control system, and that it was actually existed in breadboard form. In other words, the, the items, the jacks and, and the pumps and things, were actually tested, but it, it, it hadn't been quite perfected, but it was well on the way to doing that. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that's interesting because I, I you know, I, I feel it, it would have been hydraulic from the fact that just about everything later was hydraulic, but there was such an interest in electric uh, actuation at Miles, I decided that possibly there was uh, electric solution there. So that, that's interesting confirmation. Thank you. This is one over here. So, Steve, Steve McPaul in Aerodynamics Department of what used to be the RAE. Um, it's been interesting look, looking at the, the comments made about the aerodynamics of the vehicle. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we were digging through some of the bits and pieces in the department and found a, um, a photographic album, which we presented to Dr. G.P. Douglas on his retirement as head of department. And this, I was surprised to find, was full of photographs of a the, uh, the rocket models for launch off the Mosquitoes, but also some earlier earlier pictures of the M52 configuration. Now, I, I suggest that Tommy might bring it down here, but subsequently that the, these, the, the photographic album has gone to the FAST Museum at Farnborough. So there may be some information there which, which may, may be of value. But looking at the description of the, the, the aircraft details, um, the configuration, the aerodynamics of the external shape seem to me, from, from the current perspective, to be extremely low risk. Um, I think the only concerns I would have would be longitudinal um, stability at low speed because of the, the sharp leading edge and the controllability at higher Mark number because of the, the lack of trim power as you go through the drag rise. However, talking to Frank in his old capacity, most of the risk with this configuration seems to be in the propulsion system. Um, so would Frank care to comment on how he thinks the fan system would have worked? Uh, 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 well... <laughs> Um, I have wondered uh, about the performance, not just of the fan system, but the whole engine system and and the the installation of it. Um, Mike uh, mentioned the the intake specifically as a, an interesting area, and I fully support that. I think it's a vital area in such an aircraft. Um, I think that. Uh, if such a project were done in later days, there would have been a lot of testing of components and models before the design had been finalized. And one of the questions I was going to try and steal in and, and ask myself, Mike, was uh, how much we know, how much is known about the test work that was done on on the engine itself, the reheat system, uh, the intake system, you know, the whole propulsion uh, system uh, for the aircraft before um, before the cancellation was done. Do you, is, there, is there much on record? Of I just made a mental note to ask you that when we finished. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is no, there's very little. Very little indeed. We, we don't know what the, the... Are you saying that it is known that there wasn't much, or we just don't know? I just don't know. I, I think Kate might be able to say that she does know. Oh, fine. 
Right. I, I hope I don't um, sound as I'm hogging this uh, show. It's your show, sir. But uh, yes, uh, the the uh, the augmented system was was tested. Uh, there is a, um, a report at the National Archives, complete with photographs showing this thing, and there is a, a piece of um, uh, video footage which I think Dennis Bancroft has, uh, which shows this. I think that program on Channel Four briefly showed a glimpse of it, but yes, the thing was tested at about a thrust of about five thousand pounds, but they expected that to increase. So it would, ha it would have had about as much thrust as the X-1 in an aircraft that was half the weight. Make of that what you will. I'm not, an, I'm not a okay. <laughs> an aerodynamicist. So you're saying that the, 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 the engine system was tested at full scale and seemed to give, well, I presume what, from what you're saying, it, it gave a thrust in the region of what was predicted. Is that right? Come to the National Gas Turbine Establishment report at the National Archives. Oh, oh well, yeah. that must be, that's absolute gospel, of course. Yes, John Chaplin. Sorry. Okay, John. Um, La give first. way to a lady, sir. Ladies first. Uh, I have every confidence in Dennis Bancroft, and I'm sure that everybody here was most impressed with with your presentation, but yeah. once you've once you've got the aerodynamics, then the engineers get to work, don't they? And the engineering of that project is, was, you can see, it was years in the future. I mean, the whole the whole of metallurgy had to be um, upgraded. the The fact is, the the engine took up nearly the whole of the fuselage, and. Uh, where are you going to retract the undercarriage? Um, I know Winkle Brown calls me Mrs. Doom and Gloom, but <laughs> I'm sure that with the historic, we know what happened to the 108 and other projects, and this, this was years ahead. There were, there, well, there were years ahead. You know what engineers like? Uh, can't be done, mate. No, you'll have to redesign it, mate. You know, and, uh, there was so much to be done on that project, which was a marvellous uh, concept. But I would like to say the lady, the secretary, who would not breach the, the Official Secrets Act, I will now, I will now breach it. Because uh, true is political, but political from a very different angle. It was the Reds under the bed syndrome, I'm afraid. Uh, Blossom and FG were were very left-wing and always had been. Well, during the war, um, we were allies with the Russians. That was okay. But as soon as the war was over, there was sweeping paranoia, hysteria, absolute fear of communism that swept the whole world. And once the Americans got in on the act, um, you know, it was just... they They were just going to be pushed out, we couldn't possibly have this this magnificent project. Um, it's going to be given to the Russians. I mean, the Blossom and, and FG were very naive. They were very devout in their beliefs. And uh, this was their downfall, and this was why they were, they were eventually pushed out in the manner that they were. Now, um, they... They did all sorts of things that, um, um, in retrospect, 
were very naive. They, they collected people from all over the world, all sorts of uh, displaced persons, left-wing sympathizers. They, they even um, employed Ian Mercado, who was a um, notorious, infamous uh, left-wing. The fear of communism was, was, was becoming uh, more and more important in and uh, even one of the girls who was at Mars Aeronautical School with me, whose uncle actually was Admiral Slattery, her father suddenly came and took her away, saying, they're all a lot of communists. Um, this, this was really the reason why they, they, the whole project, as soon as the Americans got the idea, you know, yeah, got a lot of commies here. And, uh, I mean, we... Nowadays we think this is far-fetched, but at the time it was such a, an important concept and uh, I'm sure this is what the lady meant when she said it was more sinister than that. Very difficult to comment on that, except that uh, I mean everyone knows that they were very engaging, enigmatic sort of people, F.G. Um, and Blossom. And for those that perhaps are not familiar, uh, Blossom was F.G. Marl's wife, and she was a very big um, influence in the company indeed. But uh, whether they leaned left or right politically, I don't know. Uh, John Chaplin. Uh, John Chaplin. Um, there are three of us here tonight, actually, who worked for Dennis Bancroft. There's uh, Derek Rubin, Keith Gary, and myself. Uh, I was down at the wind tunnel, and uh, I'm not sure why Keith... Were you at the wind tunnel or in the aerodynamics office at the time? After I'd finished there. And Derek Rubin was in the, in the Man Aerodynamics office. Uh, somebody said earlier on who was the sort of progenitor of the idea. Um, some years ago I, I was reasonably closely associated with Nero, Nero, who I think was Director of Technical Development. Yes, yes, yeah, first meeting. Uh, and certainly from the conversations I had with him about it, I think he played a fairly major role in the initiation of the project. That's the, the, certainly the impression he left me with, anyway. Um, it's worth saying also that there was an enormous amount of test work done on the uh, airframe in various ways. I know something of the of some of the wind tunnel work, um, and uh, Derek might know more about, well, he will know more about this than I do, but, for example, there was concern about the takeoff characteristics of the, of the aeroplane, and at one time, the concept was developed of uh, what I think was called a clothed wing. In other words, um, a, a different wing section which would be jettisoned after after takeoff. There was a tremendous amount of innovative thought went into it. Um, and uh, I can only say how very sad it is that all that work effectively was, was lost when the project was cancelled. Thank you. Thanks very much. Peter Hearn. And I came across a very interesting book in a second-hand bookshop quite recently, which is written about the Edwards team, or the team at Muroc, during the Bell X-1 trials. And it's written uh, specifically about the people and about the people in the team. It's got the usual amount of American bull in it. But the most interesting thing is that a bit about the X-1, where it apparently started with a elevator and a trimmable tailplane. And it didn't have an all-moving tailplane as designed. And it was one of the, not so much one of the X-1 pilots, but a test pilot who was the test, one of the test directors on the team who said, look, we need an all-moving tailplane, whether he'd got it from the Brits or 
by then probably from the Germans, and they then designed a modification at Muroc to make it all moving so it flew on the stick, as opposed to being a trimmer. Uh, so it, it's interesting, the Americans are quite a long way behind. They were able to bodge it, if you like, but it certainly wasn't designed in the airplane, according to this book, anyhow, on day one. Can I just go back uh, briefly to the engine one? There is this video of the engine giving 5,000 pounds of thrust. It's doing it in a field at Weston, I think, or Pystock, and it's on the ground, so it's not at 36,000 feet at Mark, uh, Mark 1 or Mark 1.5, and there's got to be some question as to how much thrust you would have got out of it at that height, particularly with that intake. I mean, subsequent experience on, on intakes has given us all sorts of difficulties. Boundary layer flows, boundary layer bleeds, intake buzz. This is an axisymmetric intake. Any yaw on the airplane, I would have thought, would give us quite a lot of problems. And I wondered if the, anybody in the Miles team would like to say what they thought about the intake and uh, whether they, they would have been able to get over that problem. Thank you, Peter. Those are very relevant comments. Uh, I certainly line up with you on the on the intake. Um, sorry. I'd just like to make one comment. Uh, there's a lot I would like to make. Um, it really stems from your remarks. Um, this aeroplane was planned to uh, take off, accelerate, climb up to uh, 40,000 feet, accelerate to Mark 1 and come back again. And what was it? 40, four, um, 200 gallons of fuel? Yes. 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 This is a hell of a good SFC, is all I can yes, say. Yes, with yes, a very quite, low yes. pressure ratio engine. Yeah, yes, yes, and you were you were sort of certainly going to blew an awful lot in the reheat system, weren't you? You bet. Yes, <laughs> yes indeed. Uh, Derek Rubin, I worked on the uh, aeroplane in the aerodynamics office, and there are a number of comments I would like to make. Um, firstly, on, on the question of the. Uh, uh, power-assisted controls, they were um, hydraulic, and there was in fact a working uh, model which I played with in the hangar at times. Um, it was, I can't say it was fully developed, but it was a fully working system that was actually on the test bench. And I believe it was due to be flown in a Spitfire at White Waltham, uh, and the, all the work had been done on the installation as far as I know, but the day the aircraft, the Spitfire, was due to fly was the day the contract was cancelled, and so that aircraft never flew. Um, on the question of performance and the, the fuel consumption, um, I, I did all the basic um, aerodynamic uh, work on the aeroplane, did all the performance estimation, and um, in order to... Uh, achieve the flight profile, which uh, Mike included in his lecture. Mm. Um, fuel consumption, of course, was a critical point. Fuel was very limited. And just to answer briefly your point, uh, the return flight was um, was a dead stick approach from from somewhere like uh, 30 or 40,000 feet when all the fuel ran out. And it was a dead stick return and landing. Um, on the uh, question of the air, the aeroflot performance on the uh, Gillette Falcon, which it may have gone to Farmer at some stage, but we did all the flying at Woodley for, for uh, quite a long time. The, um, we covered the wing with uh, wool tufts and uh, masted wool tufts to give a picture of the flow over the wing, and behind on. 
behind the pilot's head we had a camera which was looking through the starboard wing uh, through the starboard um, window and there was an we put an ASI just in the window so we could actually see the flow uh, as it took uh, and relate it to the actual airspeed um, and of course we could relate that to the CL and by watching the films that were taken from a, a movie camera behind the pilot's head the, um, we were able after watching them many many times over to see what was happening to the flow and exactly how it broke away and when it broke away and uh, as has been said we flew the uh, Falcon firstly with an, an ordinary its original tailplane and elevator it then had a biconvex tailplane and elevator and thirdly it had an all-moving biconvex uh, tailplane but on the question of performance um, you'll forgive me if after 60 years uh, some of my memories may be a little at fault but um, I, I calculated that the way to climb was not at the best rate of climb which is the usual uh, way that performance is done but I discovered that there was a better speed to climb in terms of fuel used to height and uh, the climb profile was based on a minimum fuel consumption um, there was just enough fuel as I recall to get to altitude uh, perform the dive with um, I believe something like a four degree dive to uh, go supersonic and um, one of the things which I recall and I've discussed this with Dennis very recently and he doesn't remember it so one of us is wrong um, the, uh, we were told when the uh, Nymonic 90 came along that the engine could in fact suffer a 4% overspeed for a very small number of minutes and a 4% overspeed gives you something like a 20% increase in thrust um, which was what was going to take us through the, uh, the sonic barrier and of course our estimates of sonic barrier were pretty vague because they were all based on data obtained from uh, uh, ballistics and mostly from um, the uh, shells as they decelerated through Mark 1 uh, but that they, there was a lot of correction to do because shells have a very significant base drag which we didn't have and um, they didn't have wings which we did um, but uh, I think there must be many other points that I'd like to make but unfortunately Mr Chairman I have a train to catch oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much uh, my name is Mike Eggleston. I'm somewhat diffident after the very knowledgeable words from people who are actually involved in the project. But I have a small point to make, and that is that in 1948, I was at Cambridge, and my professor was Sir Bennett Melville Jones, known as Bones, who was, I believe, on the supersonic committee. Uh, incidentally, ironically perhaps, he always claimed that during his flight testing in the First World War, he'd flown more hours stalled than unstalled. <laughs> Rather the opposite end of the story. Um, of his four students at the time, three of us were ex-RAF pilots. We were discussing the M52 project and he was insistent 
that if not the main reason, a certainly a very important reason was the safety of the pilot. And all three of us said, we'd have had a go. It occurs to me that there may be some papers of his which might include minutes of meetings that took place at the supersonic committee. Though, of course, official secrets and things like that might prevent it. But uh, I wonder if it might be worth going along to the, I don't know what it's called now, Engineering Laboratory Library or something at Cambridge and see if they've got any of his papers that might throw further light on the enormous amount of information you've already assembled. And thank you very much for your talk. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for that guidance. That sounds very good. Yes, I think that's a, a, a very interesting suggestion, Mike. Um, uh, we all know that lots of people end up uh, unable to part with certain papers that are dear to their hearts. So they remind them of the, the glory days of their uh, uh, professional employment. And uh, uh, one does sometimes come across papers that people have legitimately or illegitimately. And I think it's important to try to find ways of putting our hands on those if we possibly can. Thank you. Thank you. We have two over here. Yeah, yes, As Kate's had a couple of goes, so let's have some more. John Thorpe, um, I was at Bristol on the Bristol 188 project, which of course was supersonic, straight, thin wing, and there, um, because of, again, there were concerns about the thin wing, and it was flown by Godfrey Orty, the project test pilot, down to 1.15 VS with absolutely no problems whatsoever. And the other little thing was that there were great concerns uh, by RAE, in particular on the Mars M52, about supersonic drag. Well, Bristol 188, funnily enough, um, was well down on the estimates. And that's very unusual to find any aircraft where the drag estimate, uh, the actual rest, uh, drag, turns out to be less than the estimates. Sorry, another... another uh, Chris? Uh, yes, Frank yes, sure. Kate. Yes, Christopher Oldenbar. I thoroughly enjoyed that talk. It's absolutely fascinating. One question, however, is that concerning the work that Lippisch had done on swept back and even delta wings. Had that not percolated at all into our thinking in 1942-3-4? I think, and I have to say I think, from what I can gather, it hadn't, but it was becoming evident uh, by about 43-44, or certainly 44-45, because Dennis Bancroft does actually mention in some of his work that they had begun to think about whether a delta wing would have been better based on the evidence from Germany. Uh, and as we saw, George Miles did make that comment too, albeit about six years later. So I, I think it did influence, but it, it was they'd already frozen the configuration. But a year or two later, they might have done it differently. Um, that is conjecture in that case, Chris, because uh, in, it might have been that was one of the things that the supersonic committee discussed. Um, to the best of my knowledge, all the minutes of every meeting, let me say every official meeting of the supersonic committee, do survive, and that there was no such debate about the M52, which is where some of the um, uh, people that support the M52 feel that Sir Ben was acting under a little bit of duress in making that statement in his memo. Yes. Uh, John Chaplin again. Uh, just on this question of Lippisch, what I can remember is that we had a significant number of films at Woodley, which were in fact taken in German wind tunnels, and I think must have been part of the spoils of war, uh, which showed a lot of their um, uh, high-speed 
testing on various configurations of wings. Now, when those were obtained, I'm not at all sure, but uh, uh, certainly they were there late 1945, early 1946. Well, our people certainly got out there fairly soon, didn't they? And a lot of material was brought back. Uh, David Locksbyser, I'm, uh, I, I I'm an ex-Miles Aeronautical Technical student and a great admirer of the Miles family design team. But the point I wanted to just mention was that, as we're talking about high-speed flight in addition to the M52, is the Germans decided to build a supersonic airplane in 1940, the DFS-228. And that was going to be, if not transonic, it was going to be very high-speed and it was going to uh, uh, test the systems, rocket-powered. Um, maybe similar to the ME-163, I don't know. Uh, they then built the 336, which was designed to do initially Mark I, but ultimately Mark II. And they built this airplane. Um, and uh, it was, it fell, the Russians captured it after the war. Uh, they flew it. They flew it, ironically enough, they kept, they, a, a B-29 had forced landed at Vladivostok. And they took this and they put the DSS-236 in the B-29 and they flew a flight profile, which is very, seems to me, quite likely where Bell got their flight profile from. The Russians, I believe, claimed that they got, they went supersonic, but no, but that isn't authenticated or established. But I just thought that, uh, those two aircraft, well, that, that aircraft project, the DFS-228 and the 236, which were pretty similar, uh, was an interesting, uh, part of you know, supersonic investigation. There was one over at the very, very back. Good evening, sir. James, oh. Good evening, sir. James Fordham. Just a quick question. Um, I'm probably missing something obvious here, but I see a slight issue with potentially using hydraulic flight controls when the engines shut down for landing, particularly with the, the control forces you discussed for, um, for it, with the hydraulics off. Can anyone shed any light on how that would be overcome in such a small aircraft? Well, I do remember Peter Twiss in this room about two or three years ago uh, describing very graphically his glide back when he lost his engine and uh, he was worried about whether there was enough in the hydraulics to get him down, and, and there was just. But it was a, an epic return. I'm sure Winkle Brown would uh, agree with that. <laughs> Did I just say on the yeah. subject of German... Swept wings and delta wings. Um, I was never flight from January 1944 for six years, and there wasn't much talk about swept wing or delta wing work up to that time. It really came to into prominence when we brought the captured German scientists into the REE. And the two who really made a tremendous contribution were uh, Dr. Kuchemann and Dr. Dutch. Mm. And they really re revealed a tremendous amount of um, information on the high-speed wind tunnel testing that had been undertaken in Germany. And um, it could be a whole lecture here, so we won't go into it any further, but I can, <laughs> I can assure you we had some very intense discussions with these two people. Thank you very much. It's me again, folks. Um, Eric's absolutely right. Uh, the supersonic committee records show that um, there wasn't much discussion about the wings. The wings were straight. At the end of the war, 
after the teams had gone to Germany, including Lok Speiser himself, they came back and the debate started. There was quite a number of people who were absolutely um, hostile towards the idea of, of a straight-wing M52. Uh, and several people very strenuously advocated swept-back approach, which, of course, Dennis Bancroft said is irrelevant. Um, a further speaker mentioned uh, uh, Professor Melville Jones, um, a previous speaker, and uh, absolutely right. He was also very opposed to, to the safety of, of the M52, being a pilot himself. And uh, there was quite a lot of debate in the supersonic committee minutes about the safety of the M52 and the length of time it would take to develop the jettisonal cabin. Um, uh, Richard Bateson. Um, I'm wondering if I could just ask Eric Brown whether he could uh, give us some information about the work that uh, Hans Multop and uh, Martin Winter did at RAE um, after the cancellation with this uh, supersonic uh, design, which he was also going to fly. Multop and Winter were two of the scientists, we captured scientists, but they didn't stay on at the RAE like the other two I mentioned. But they were there long enough to be given a, a supersonic project, which was based very much on the information that was available to us from the M52 and the German information. It was, if you like, a mix of the, the two. And, um, for example, the fuselage, etc., looked very like the M52 in many ways. Um, but much of the information was also based on German trials with the ME163, mainly in the question of the using a skid for landing. And, and this was a, a supersonic aircraft which was going to land on a skid at about 180 miles an hour. So it was in the same category, basically, as the um, M52. It would theoretically have gone to about 1.7, um, whereas the M52 was, um, as we know now, only got to, model-wise, only got to 1.38. But nevertheless, this was all, if you like, a progressive development from the catalyst of the M52. Any more? Yes, Chew Warren. Um, I, too, was very interested in this talk. But I was at the Royal Aircraft Establishment in the Aerodynamics Department during those relevant years. But at the material time, I was working on the problems of ditching, which is a very much lower Mach number than you're talking about. <laughs> so I was only vaguely aware of what was going on in this field. I do remember that I, I sort of learned and have always felt that it was Lock Spicer not cancel the project, mainly because... He didn't think it was a, a right thing to do to, to get a, to try and get a man to go through the speed of sound, really. Uh, at the time that he, can, the project was cancelled, he initiated effectively doing the same thing with models, uh, and the, the test was conceived of make, well, they did it on a, a model of the M52, as you said. But the job was given to Vickers, and uh, uh, and the idea was that you you'd avoid the takeoff and landing problems, and by taking the thing up in a uh, drop it from a mosquito, and then just really do the test run. Um, 
the difference between the model and the aeroplane was the aeroplane was uh, propelled by a turbojet, but the model was rocket propelled uh, that we that, that, that the RE conceived. Now I came into this job. I think you mentioned that someone one was lost, dropped, dropped off the aeroplane, didn't it? Forty-seven. Yes, I came on the job after that. I, when, when I came into on the job, I, I heard about this one that dropped away. But uh, and that, then you recorded the, the, the next one they released. The, the motor, the motor didn't fire, didn't work. The rocket, um, and we spent a, nearly a year trying to get rocket motors to light at that altitude. And that was what all the work was being spent on, not doing any aerodynamic research at all, really. But eventually, we, we did get the final one where it, it, the motor worked and the, the model was dropped from the Mosquito and it did accelerate away and got up to 1.5 Mach. And then, of course, crashed into the sea. And that was a, a fitting time to end that model experiment because by then, of course, um, Chuck Yeager had already done the same thing in a manned aeroplane being dropped from a parent aircraft and he'd gone through the speed of sound uh, in, in, a, in the Bell X-1. Um, but um, So it was done by the Americans in the end with a man in an aeroplane doing the same thing what we were doing with a model. But uh, that, that was what, how, the extent to which I came in. Thank you. Thank you. Any, any more? Uh, Barry Swainston, I'm the chairman of the Flight Simulation Group Committee here at the Aeronautical Society. Can I go off at a slight tangent back to the 188? I'm glad there's somebody else in the room that worked on that. Uh, as a relative child here, it was in my in my uh, 20s that I worked on a Type 188. And I'd, uh, there, there are two things that strike me about that which might be relevant when you're considering the Miles aircraft. First of all, the straight wing problem. Uh, the uh, the 188 was designed for Mark III, uh, and it was a straight wing. Uh, is my understanding, as uh, I actually trained as an aerodynamicist, and never practiced as such, um, that the idea of a swept wing is to um, uh, uh, delay the onset of transonic effects. Well, you're going a thousand miles an hour, there's no point in having a swept wing. Keep it simple, stupid. Delta, I think, was probably too complicated from a structural point of view, and I think they wanted to keep it simple because they know that a thousand miles an hour, they're not going to get any, any advantage from swept wing, which is why 188 was also a straight wing aircraft. The other comment I would make, why didn't the 188 ever get beyond the speed it did, which was less than half of what it was intended? And it was a very simple fault in the a shortcoming. It wasn't even a fault, it was a shortcoming in the engine intake control, the bullet control system of the, of, the, of the engine. A much more complicated system than the Miles aircraft, and that stopped it. And there was, uh, it was subsequent to the last flight, we found by simulation, there was a backlash uh, in the part of the mechanism of 10 thou. We simulated it at 7 thou and it worked, and that was what stopped it getting to this intended speed. I say that because I, the, the one thing which worries me more than anything else about the M52 was the intake design. I mean, it looks pretty good, you know, from that, that, that time, you know, the bullet type intake. Um, and, uh, but I, I do wonder whether that might have been the real gotcha there, apart from anything else. There's a reply regarding the 188, perhaps. Thank you. We're diverging slightly, but we won't worry about that. Um, the Bristol 188, as you're quite right, it was designed for Mark III. There were problems with the intake in that it was discovered afterwards uh, when a lot of research was done up at Lucas Aerospace who made the intake control equipment, it was all temperature sensitive. 
which is not a good idea in a high-speed aircraft. Um, by and large, the, en the intake worked okay, but the engine had a very, very narrow surge margin. And at um, a, a meeting down in Bristol, I made the remark that probably the Jaron Junior was the worst engine ever made. This really wound the de Havilland people there up because they said, no, 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 it was your rotten old intake. But the reason why the 188 didn't achieve its objective of getting to, to Mark III, of course, was uh, not enough fuel capacity uh, and the fact that the engine drank it very, very quickly indeed. The, uh, the engine SFC was absolutely appalling, really was, and that's what killed that. Somebody earlier mentioned the fact that the uh, M52 uh, was running pretty hot down the back end and uh, there were concerns about the structure. Uh, if you go to Cosford and look into the intake, uh, sorry, into the back end of the uh, engine cells of the 188, you can see the temperature sensitive paints that I put in there as an apprentice in 1960. They are still just visible because we were concerned about our structure as well. Thank you. I think we ought to get back to the M52, and in <laughs> fact, we are approaching the, the conclusion, I think, of the evening. Is there anybody who would like to say something who... Why was the tail swept back? Right. I asked Dennis Bancroft that question a little while ago, and I got a long letter back explaining. And uh, I, I find this wonderful that he can recall so much 60 years on. One, I said to him, was it swept back because you wanted the attachments ahead of the augmenter, where it was cooler? And the answer was, no, 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 the augmenter's further forward, which, I say, really made me think that the, the actual hot section of jet pipe was much longer than I'd always assumed. But I, I always believed the augmenter components were very well back. But anyway, coming back to the real question... Um, they were short of tail arm. It would be nice to have a bit of sweep back. That, that was one thing. But the, because it is such a thin structure, the only place where it's thick enough to put a pivot was at the 50% cord point at the, um, at the, uh, root. And because of the way the CP moves as you go through the transonic regime, it was sensible to reduce the, uh, the load on the pivot by sweeping back the, the tailplane. And that's why they swept it back. They, they took no account of any aerodynamic um, advantage. It was purely for mechanical design. Harry Fraser Mitchell, yes. Vice Chairman of our group, so he should have the last question, I think. <laughs> Thank you, Frank. Um, I'm surprised that the word Lockheed F-104 hadn't uh, come up, because it seems <laughs> to me that that uh, configuration was very similar to the M-52 with a very thin biconvex wing. Uh, all right, the intake arrangements were quite different. And the, and the power, of course, was enormous. But um, uh, what worries me is that aeroplane was once given the epithet, the Widowmaker. Well, I'll come on to that. And uh, I think um, you're quite right that it, it, uh, it had a bad reputation. But I, I'd, I'd like to think that it was a Widowmaker because often it was used in military maneuvers which were really pulling the edge of the envelope. I'd like to believe that the M52 was a good research machine. If it had been used in its research style, it shouldn't have been any more risky than, than many, many other projects around. So, um, yes, it would, it would have been a handful at low speeds, at stall in particular, but uh, you, you would keep away from that all being well. Last question but one, Peter Hearn. <laughs> oh, sorry, last question plus one. This is just a suggestion, Frank, rather than a question. But we've had a lot of talk about the German high-speed research and... Uh, what, the, what that led to. Um, the a man called Rudolf, who was actually one of the very progenitor of the swept wing idea in about 1939, 
<coughs> died quite recently, actually. He'd just been supervising a doctoral thesis of a friend of mine who working in Göttingen. And I think there's a fascinating lecture to be given to the group, which is how the German approach to high-speed research developed and went on through World War II. It's never been properly ex ex explained. Uh, Ludwig Bolko told me that when they got Rudolph's report, they phoned him up in the middle of the night, and he got in the back of a 110 and was flown to Berlin, and promptly everything was classified. That's about 3940. So there's a great deal of work on how it originated and how they exploited it. I think it would form the basis of a very interesting lecture to this group, particularly if we get a German to deliver it. I am going to call a halt now. We've had a discussion period which is just about as long as the lecture, um, which is a good sign, I think. It shows people have been interested. It has been, I think, a fascinating evening. I won't claim to be able to sum up at all. It's very, very difficult to do that. But it, it, uh, perhaps I could just comment that I find it interesting that um, apparently there weren't very clear warnings of impending uh, cancellation in, in the paperwork. One, you know, having worked uh, on a number of projects myself through, through the years, um, one can think of uh, the minutes of meetings and so on giving a very very good idea of problems that were being experienced and delays and cost overruns and so forth and you know looking back on them afterwards i think you'd get a pretty pretty clear pointers and um i find it puzzling that uh, nobody around the room is saying well that there was there were such and such comments on particular things whether they were aerodynamic or uh, engine or engine intake matching or what um it uh, i think uh, the whole area needs looking at um as closely as possible um uh looking at the the papers that are available i would i would certainly encourage everybody to keep looking. Uh, there are all sorts of things still being found and uh, I think that it is quite possible that we might get further illumination on this if, uh, if people keep at it one way and another. Um, to me it looked a very high risk project I have to say and perhaps it's a funny thing for a gas turbine man to say but I think if I'd been aiming to get through the speed of sound in the simplest possible way, I would have been inclined to have used a rocket. I think the American approach is pretty sensible, really, you know, because with a rocket system, I know it has problems of its own, but you don't have the, the intake and the engine intake matching, and that area has given a lot of trouble with the high-speed aircraft, even in a later era when we knew a great deal more about it. And I think it would have been a really quite amazing if this aeroplane had all worked. Everything had come together. Um, that's my own view, but it, I find it interesting that people apparently weren't saying that in terms of technical warnings, problems being... Uh, encountered and worries expressed and so forth. So it is a very interesting thing to uh, to conjure with uh, and uh, we're very much indebted to Mike Hurst for his uh, fascinating talk this evening. I thought that uh, 
he, he set it out extremely clearly with very good diagrams. We were all reminded of just what the basics were in that aircraft. And uh, you took us through the whole story very, very clearly, Mike. And I think that uh, uh, you must have uh, recognized from the degree of interest and the quality of the comments made that uh, it was much appreciated. So thank you very much indeed for this evening's lecture. Thank you.